Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi, everybody. Cheryl Ackeson here. Welcome to another edition of Full Measure After Hours. I'm pleased to announce a Full Measure After Hours podcast exclusive with Glenn Beck. He's going to talk with me about being beloved, being despised, getting smeared. He's going to talk about the media and politics, why he really left Fox News, and a secret meeting involving George Soros. Do you have something to say and want to make your own podcast? Let me tell you how to do that for free with Anchor. Anchor has creation tools that let you record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. You can even add any song from Spotify directly to your episodes. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more places. And you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's all you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Glenn Beck with me now. What, what would you say is your title today? I don't know. Um, I don't know. Uh, Businessman, entertainer? Uh, entrepreneur, okay. entertainer, yeah. What is your current, where does most of your time and attention go now, professionally? Uh, most of it goes to my uh, radio or podcasts. You know, I do... Generally speaking, about three shows a day. I do three hours on radio. Then I do a half-hour television kind of podcast online. And then another uh, another one for about a half an hour. You are here, as we speak right now, for the State of the Union address? Yeah. I, I didn't... I've never gone. I went last year. And have you gone? Nope. Have you been in? Never been in person. You have to. I, Does someone have to invite you to sit in there? Yeah. Who yeah. invited you? I'm not allowed to say. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> they said, please don't say, Glenn, please. I'm <laughs> like, I know, I know. Okay. So, uh, but I, I, uh, I went last year, and what I found fascinating was the things you never see on TV. I watched the Senate and the Congress and the games and the, and the note passing and the looking at each other like, don't do anything now, wait, we're going to do this. It was crazy. It was crazy. That kind of falls in line with what you'd said to me before this conversation about everything's sort of a game. People mm-hmm. are playing a game. Mm-hmm. People are wearing masks. Mm-hmm. I mean, probably nowhere is that more true than Washington, D.C. I was told by a uh, boss uh, once, uh, he said, you know what your problem is? I said, no. And he said, you won't play the game. And I said, I didn't know it was a game. 
and he said, um, you don't think that I know exactly what the person on the other side of any, you know, boycott or anything wants? They need a pound of my flesh, and so I give them a pound of my flesh, but they call me before, and then I tell them, okay, we'll end with this, and I give them a pound of my flesh, and then we go and have dinner. He said, you won't play the game. And I said, I find that disgusting. I don't know. I won't play that. Because people actually believe in something. They're just positioning. I can tell you from the inside, as someone in the news media, that there are many in the news media at the corporate level all the way down to reporting level that play a similar game when it comes Mm -hmm. to what they report on the political figures that they deal with, there is a lot of that exchange. It's the problem the press has, has, and Wilson, I think, is is really kind of responsible for some of this, with Woodrow Wilson. When the, when we, when he started the, um, the correspondence dinner, that was bring them into our game. Because they had their game, but they were, guardians for the people and so they were not part of the problem generally speaking Wilson when he brought them in then then everything started to change and the only ones that are out are the ones who are not in those parties us the people who are in the middle of the country going back to when you started I know that you did uh more entertainment radio show Mm -hmm. in the beginning, and we're not terribly interested in politics. Mm -hmm. And then if I got this correctly, from listening to you talk about this earlier, after 9-11, a lot of that changed, and you became more focused on what was happening in the country in terms of politics, and you started a national radio show. Is Mm -hmm. that right? Yeah. um, I started doing talk radio. I've been in radio since 1979. Local radio or any of those national Local radio. Okay. Okay. And... um, worked here in Washington, D.C., and big markets all around the country, doing mornings. And, you know, when you start at 13, by the time you're 30, the magic's kind of gone. And when you're 20 uh, and you're already a little screwed up, uh, in the 70s, early 80s with the drug scene and everything else, by 30 I was just a mess, a wreck. And... um, and so I wanted to change my life and, and do something that meant something. And so uh, I sobered up in the early 90s, and by the middle of the 90s, my father said, I said, I'm getting out of radio, there's nothing here. And he said, you've known what you wanted to do since you were eight. Find something that interests you. And so I found things that interest me, um, and they were things that were real and values and principles, but I also wanted to do it in a fun way. And so I kind of got into talk radio, mocking talk radio. And um, and then September 11th happened, and it changed my world because I fought myself on this over and over again. Um, I, you have a responsibility. I have a footprint of 50 million people a month. You have a responsibility, especially, I'm a religious guy, Ezekiel. If you're on the gate and you're looking over the gate and you can see trouble coming, 
if you don't warn people, the blood of their lives are on your hand. But as long as I say, hey, there's trouble coming, whatever you guys do or don't do, now the blood's on your hand. But I couldn't get past that warning in Ezekiel. When I see trouble coming, I have 50 million people that might hear the warning. What was the trouble that you saw coming, in a nutshell? Uh, The trouble that I saw coming was first in 99. I was on the air and I said, um, Osama bin Laden. Uh, It was right after... Clinton bombed the aspirin factory, and I read his words, and I was, and all the conservatives were like, "Clinton, he's just doing this, you know, whatever." And, and I said, "No, no, have you read this guy? This guy means it." And strangely, I said, "There will be blood bodies and buildings in this city in the next ten years, and his name will be on it." And I said that in New York City. Um, then the the split and the divide. Uh, I just found an old thing that I was talking about recently about how the Democrats would be eaten by socialists because I saw Michael Moore sitting in the presidential box with Jimmy Carter in 2004. And I said, you think you're using him and them. They're using you. And in the end, they will eat you because they despise you no matter how friendly you guys are. They despise what you stand for. The banking crisis was another one. Um, and then we got into Marxism in 2008, and it was then it just consumed me. You did a TV program on CNN, which I hadn't remembered until you reminded me. Mm-hmm. How long were you at CNN? Two years. And then you went to Fox News for about two, two and a half years? years? Two years? Two and a half. And maybe two, two and a half. And you came under your show, I think, got very popular very quickly. Yeah. And then you came under an organized attack by Media I, Matters and other... I remember thinking, this is, like a, this is like a Jason Bourne movie. This doesn't... People don't go through my garbage, you know? What, what, do you, what is this? Um, and I don't think people really understand the level of games that are being played. And, and they will play for keeps. Even when you recognize... Well, I should ask it as a question. Did you recognize that's what was happening at the time? We now know about these organized campaigns to controversialize people or destroy yeah. them. At the time, were you cognizant of it and just couldn't make other people aware it was happening? So I couldn't believe... At first, I just... It sounded so conspiratorial. Um, and then, you know, we started looking at... Where's the source? Where's this source? Where's this coming from? Who's funding this? And then about a year into it, um, my guy who was running my company was asked uh, to have lunch with George Soros's number one guy. And they sat down at a restaurant, and um, this guy said to, uh, to my guy, your boss is hurting mine, and it's going to stop. And uh, my guy said, well... How's he hurting him? I mean, what is he doing? Well, he's saying these things. If there is something untrue, I'm authorized to tell you right now, we will correct it. Just tell us what it is. Long conversation. At the end, he said, um, you don't understand. A ship is already leaving port, and you're either on it or you're not on it. And right now, he's not on it. And uh, everyone will be left behind 
and my guy said, I'm pretty sure, I don't have to check with Glenn, but I'm pretty sure he's going to be happy about being on the shore. And the last thing he said was, you don't understand, it will stop. And we were pretty spooked by that. And that's the why I did the Puppet Master show. I wanted to alert everybody, this guy does not like me. I'm his number one enemy. If something should happen, <laughs> this is him. I think you were tracing, if I remember correctly, the Soros funding, which does look, when you chart it out, conspiratorial, doesn't mean it's not true, but you start looking at the connections, and then he did give, it was finally announced, at least a million dollars to Media Matters, which then did attack you and other people right. quite it was specifically. A, he started, I, I'm strangely, where this is a badge of honor, and also this scares the hell out of me, I was the first one, he gave that million dollars to start a 24-hour desk uh, originally for me and then it went on they were doing stuff 24 hours a day people may not know groups like these media matters is probably the biggest they target somebody for reasons of their donors or whoever and monitor these people 24 hours a day seven days a week everything that comes out of their mouth everything they write and they take it out of context yes they may they take it take out it out of context, context present it alongside uh, other material that makes it look like something it's mm -hmm. not, and ultimately for the purposes of destruction. Was that part of the reason you ended up leaving Fox News? No, I left New York partly because of stuff like that. Um, my, my family and I, we went to see an Alfred Hitchcock movie in the park, and we had wanted to do it for a long, long time. Since Blank's daughter was young, she wanted to do it. We finally did it. And we were sitting there, she was in college, first year of college at the time, and um, the crowd attacked my family, literally threw wine on them, uh, did horrible, just, it was a horrible experience. And to be clear, you had been quite popular publicly a year or two before that. If people were to ask about Glenn Beck, the name was not associated with No, when I was on things. CNN, saying the same things, I was fine, I was fine soon as I went to Fox. It changed overnight. Um, part of that had to do with the platform. CNN is not as powerful as Fox in America. Um, and especially if you're a conservative. I mean, who's listening to you? <laughs> you know, who's watching you? A lot of, I think a lot of the people who used to watch me on Fox thought I was doing a parody of a conservative. They might have watched it as a comedy show going, oh, that guy's so funny, he's acting like, you know, doing a uh, Stephen Colbert thing, but um, so that changed rapidly. So, what would you say is the reason you ended up leaving Fox News? Uh, I remember saying every day for a long time, uh, "We got to get out of here." Meaning, the media—it's going to the entire thing is going to burn down to the ground because you could just see it coming. There's just no self-awareness or self-reflection on anything. And, um, and then, at the same time, uh, you know, when, when you are the number one show and you know Washington is watching, you know that all the senators have your show on at 5 o'clock, you know the White House is watching you, and you can actually affect things, it's really intoxicating. 
And uh, luckily, because I'm an alcoholic, I bottomed out in the 90s. And I knew what my soul was worth. And when I found I was starting to want that, every alarm bell went off in me. Get out. Because you'll begin to make small compromises, and before you know it, you'll do anything to keep that going. Thank you so much. Very interesting. Thank you. If you're interested in hearing more with Glenn Beck and seeing him too, you can watch more on Full Measure at fullmeasure.news online. We will post that story after it airs on TV Sunday, February 23rd. You can look for it maybe around noontime Eastern time at fullmeasure.news. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you did, leave a comment, like it, share it with your friends, and consider subscribing to the Cheryl Ackeson podcast and Full Measure After Hours. Those are two of my podcasts. You can listen to them on iTunes or your favorite distributor or visit CherylAckeson.com and just look at the podcast tab. You can listen to them right there. Do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself. Thanks for listening. Hi everybody, Cheryl Ackeson here. Welcome to another edition of Full Measure After Hours. Today we're going to talk about bringing down the exorbitant cost of what we pay for hospital and medical services like surgery, MRIs, and lab tests. It turns out solving the problem may be relatively simple, but that sure doesn't mean it's easy. Joining me right now, don't get too excited, folks, David Bernkoff, investigative producer extraordinaire, is back because not only did he cover and actually think of the most recent story we did in North Carolina on health care costs, He also, I think, found and covered with me the Montana story we previously did. Let's review briefly. I still think Montana is one of the most interesting stories I've ever covered from figuring out money and health care costs. Do you want to just do the brief summary of how Montana successfully got the cost of their state health insurance program for state employees and retirees and their family, how they got that under control because it was going to go belly up before they tried this initiative. Yes, like a lot of states, um, they have their own health coverage they provide to employees and families and retirees, and it costs a lot of money, and it costs more money in many states than they're bringing in through whatever premiums or taxes are available. So Montana just happened to be one of the first places where a retired wonderful character named Marilyn Bartlett was brought in. She had worked in the insurance industry, so she knew a little more from the other side. Yeah. And she was a tough negotiator, and she said to the relatively small hospital groups that operate in Montana, here's what we're going to pay you. It's going to be more than Medicare pays you. It's enough you can make a profit on it. Here's what we're going to do. And those hospitals said, uh-uh, we ain't going along with this, and if you don't uh, agree to our continuing the way things are, none of your state employees will be able to use a hospital in Montana. And she basically faced them down. She called their bluff, if it was a bluff. Right. 
And they eventually agreed, and the numbers have turned around substantially. I mean, really incredibly, because the, the reason they did this, they actually had passed a law that said, by statute, they had to fix this program that was underwater and going to go bankrupt. So she came in with this mandate. Even other state officials didn't like it, because think of the influences of the hospital and medical industry and the insurance industry, the donations that come in from them. They wield so much power, but she had the fact that the law was on her side, the law saying you have to do this by a certain deadline. And yeah, in the end, I guess the hospitals blinked because they're the ones who gave in and agreed to the new pricing structure that's turned everything around there. And one of the things, one of the reasons is probably that Montana is a pretty small, out of the way in terms of media states. So the big hospital associations didn't get involved. Talk about this. When we were researching the story, which I think, still think, like I said, is an incredible story, there was almost no news coverage about it, and certainly almost none in Montana, where this should be headline news day after day, and that told me, you know, how I think about management of the news these days. There was some management of the news going on because this should have been front and center and was not. I had seen an interview, a printed interview on the NPR website. That was how I first heard of it. And when I went to look at the newspapers and TV stations in Montana, no coverage, none at all. So I think other than NPR, we're the only people who've covered this story and certainly the only ones who've covered it in the kind of depth we've covered it in. Let me, let me divert a little bit to say some years ago when I was at Investigative Reporters and Editors, the IRE Investigative Conference, big one that happens every year for journalists, I talked to the local news reporters there, their local and national, print, broadcast, web, all kinds. And some years ago, when we were in a circle talking, I said, we were saying to each other, who's influencing the news now? Because we all behind the scenes, me at CBS or wherever I've worked, and them in local news, we know there are certain industries that management doesn't really want you to report on for various reasons, or certain corporations or certain interests. So I remember saying a couple years ago, what are yours? And all of them from different areas said hospitals. The other thing they said that's not relevant to this story was car dealerships. But hospitals... Car dealerships clearly for local (laughs) TV are important. So I don't know if people know. They may kind of assume it when they hear us say it. Oh, yeah, but you may not know how much what you see and, more importantly, maybe what you don't see on the news could be influenced by industries. And I think in Montana it's very likely that those powerful industries were keeping this off the headlines. So then, mm-hmm. because of the success, you might logically think other states would want to emulate this. And sure enough, a few other states decided, let's see if we can do what Montana did. In fact, when we were covering the story, Maryland, what was her last name? Bartlett. Marilyn Bartlett, the woman responsible for Montana's turnaround, told us that other states had called her and were kind of consulting with her about how they could do it, too. So the treasurer of the state of North Carolina, in that state the treasurer has... uh, Dale Falwell. Dale Dale Falwell has responsibility for managing the cost of that that state's employee and retiree and family health system, which in Montana you were talking about 
30 to 35,000 people covered by it, tiny state population-wise. In North Carolina, you were talking about over 700,000 people, and you have much bigger, more connected, more important um, hospital uh, systems, including the University of North Carolina, Duke University. These are big players. And they decided to make a stand in North Carolina. That's pretty clear. And they knew it was coming because Dale Falwell, the treasurer, ran on this platform that he was going to fix this problem, which I think everybody agrees needs fixing. They don't have the money to stay afloat. I think they're projected to go belly up in a couple of decades, but, you know, really having problems with solvency. So the hospital industry, when he got elected, knew what was coming, and he called his plan the Clear Pricing Project, yes. CPP. And it was very much modeled on the Montana system, local tweaks. And uh, at first they offered to pay hospitals for procedures, whatever Medicaid pays, that set rate. Medicare. Medicare, sorry, Medicare, plus 66%, not 16%, 66%. So So let's do an example, an MRI of your knee. If it was going to cost you, if Medicaid, Medicare, what is it? Medicare Federal. Medicare Federal. Federal Medicare would pay the hospital $1,000 to do that MRI. The state of North Carolina would pay $1,660 for that same procedure. A lot more. A lot more. Now, wait, let's, let's, let's divert. Let's go back again and say this pricing structure everywhere is a secret. That's what the big deal is. The hospitals do not tell their customers, you know, nobody knows what they really pay and what things really cost. They just get this sort of formulaic thing, which leads to one hospital may charge $800 for an MRI and one may charge $9,000 without explanation. So Dale Falwell started much as they did in Montana with asking the hospitals to provide what the costs are so we can give you a fair markup, you know, that we can, like, actually see and standardize and make this predictable. And there was a moment in the interview... That we did for full measure. We did for full measure, that if you have seen the piece or will see the piece, you will see the visualization of this, where Falwell gets back from the University of North Carolina system. Now, remember, this is a state school, University of North Carolina but they maintain their health system under a separate board of directors, so they are not technically run by the state, but they certainly are funded by the state. And And they don't just treat university students. They treat the state employees. They treat people in the state. And the state sent back, when he asked for all of their costs for procedures, what did the state send him back? A bundle of blacked-out papers, like getting a Freedom of Information response from the federal government. That's what it reminded me of. Every page, almost, covered in black. And they told him the same thing that they told Montana. This is proprietary. You can't know it because it would affect our ability to compete. All these excuses for why the institution paying for the health care couldn't know why it was paying what it was paying. Why the public? Why the customer? I mean, how many models are there where you're told you can't possibly know the secret of information that you're paying for that's, that's, that's basically being used to charge you? And the argument, one of the arguments that the North Carolina Hospital Association made was, well, when you go to Home Depot or you go to Ace Hardware, 
they don't tell you what it costs them for a light bulb. And if you knew what it cost them for a light bulb and that was public, then that would affect the whole business model of Home Depot versus Ace Hardware. The problem with that argument, as we know from covering this issue, is to compare healthcare to any other business is ridiculous because the customer doesn't have any information. It's not like you go in and you say, oh, it costs, a, I don't know what they pay for a light bulb, but I know what I pay for the light bulb. You, you don't even know what you pay, pay for the light bulb. <laughs> and you're not the one who's funding Home Depot. Like in the end, the taxpayers have a big role in the funding of these institutions that are then hired to service the taxpayers and the state employees and are still being told you as the customer and the funder can't have the information. And also the idea that, I mean, we all know we can go to a dozen places and see what a light bulb costs and make a rational decision. That's not really analogous to if you've broken your leg and you've got to get it fixed that you could then go to a dozen Shop hospitals and, ask and doctors. Them and know yeah. that, you know. you got to get it done quickly, and you have to get it done in a place that accepts your insurance. So it's just, it, it's an ongoing, endless way to keep the consumer, whether it's the state of North Carolina or Montana, or any individual from actually knowing what things cost. Which is happening at the federal level. I think this is why it's so hard, why all of Congress's solutions seem to center on getting everybody insurance, which we can talk about that another time, but will not solve the problem of cost. It just spreads the cost around. But I'm going to make now my view of what I think was the Hospital Association's best argument. Tell me if I get this correct, if you think I've gotten this correctly, correct, if I describe it correctly. That is, and I thought this was interesting because I hadn't heard it. They say, maybe we could live off the money the 66%, we'll talk about how that was negotiated later again, but the 66% above Medicare maybe would be enough if the hospitals only were treating state employees and their families. But you guys have to give us enough money to handle all these patients who can't or won't pay their bills that are not state employees. We have an ethical obligation to take care of them regardless of their ability to pay. How are we going to do that if we don't charge the ones who can pay more to cover them? And I think they have a point there. How are they going to cover the bills for the indigent or the ones who simply don't pay their bills or whatever the reason is if they can't take more from those who do pay? I think that is a good point they make. And they make another good point. Again, they try to make this unique to North Carolina because we were talking to the North Carolina Hospital Association. I'm sure other states with similar hospitals would make the same point, and that is that North Carolina has research hospitals. They have University of North Carolina and Duke and Wake Forest, and those hospitals do more than just treat people. They do research. They have capital expenditures that have to be covered also that maybe a small regional or rural hospital doesn't have, and so you can't handcuff them with uh, price uh, restrictions. On the other hand, and you can watch this story, we're recording this on Friday the 28th of February, but it airs on full measure, uh, what is that, March 1st on March Sunday. March 1st, it's a leap year. You can go to fullmeasure.news and watch it if you're interested more, and you'll hear a discussion, another counterpoint on the other hand, where I talk about, with the Hospital Association, 
the notion that, well, they're not exactly poor. If you look at their operating profits, I read back some of those figures. If you look at the compensation for CEOs, you know, $6 million in compensation in a year in one example, I'm not saying they don't deserve it. I'm not saying it isn't a giant corporation or industry, but it's not as if all the money is going to pay for indigent patients and that the hospitals are barely squeaking by, which is sometimes the impression they seem to try to give. Yes, and the hospital association uh, head, Stephen Lawler, I think was his name, notes that there's a pretty wide range of that profit percentage. He says in the interview it was from 2 to 18%. So 2% is a pretty small margin. Like That's like a, what a grocery store makes. It's like really barely breaking even. But 18% is not a small margin. That's pretty successful business by any measure. So when the hospital association, the hospitals balked at the 66% above Medicare, which had happened in Montana as well, the treasurer of North Carolina started negotiating and offering a little more and a little more. Do you want to kind of describe that? Yeah, he went up from 66% to 70-something percent to 80-something percent to just a little over 90% more than the federal reimbursement. And the hospital association kept saying no, and they said no long enough that the treasurer had to back away from that part of his reform. Yeah. And so I mean, it, it did not really, get passed. There were million-dollar ad campaigns on both sides. He was pilloried you know, by those who did not want this plan to go through. Um, of course, a lot of people supported it, but this is just... So he got smaller hospital chains and doctors' associations to agree to the pricing, the pricing plan, but that's... So small. It doesn't save enough money. It doesn't save enough money. It's the big hospitals where the big cost is. And he says he's going to try to get at it again next year. But treasurer of North Carolina is an elected job, and three Democrats are vying to run against him. He's a Republican. He's a Republican. And they're all citing his failure (laughs) to get this reform passed as the reason why he should be thrown out of office. So. I mean, it's we'll see just if he gets another chance at it. Something to learn at the federal level when you think about, I think it being even harder for federal politicians to tackle the same issues if they try, which is probably why they're not even trying, and then going up against the big money of the insurance industry, the medical industry, and the hospitals. So let's talk about briefly what each side says they're going to do next. You can, you want to do the hospitals or Falwell? He had some ideas, and hospitals said they had their own. You don't remember? I don't remember. I'll, okay, I'll start it. You can pick it up if you remember. But the hospitals favor a model called value-based right, pricing, something right. like that. And the way they described it, you know, it sounds like a good idea, but one little drawback I thought of, their, their idea was to better manage chronic patients. In other words, put a lot of resources into making people that suck a lot of um, resources out of the healthcare system, make them healthier. But then, reduce hospital visits that yes. way and therefore reduce overall cost. But the problem with that is, he said, the hospital association representative, and then fold in any savings into you know, infrastructure or I assume profits or new initiatives, meaning you're not, you haven't saved anything. You haven't returned anything to the consumer who cannot afford this level of cost. They're just talking about, hey, if we make savings, we're just going to scoop that up and put that in another pot. Right. It didn't seem like if you followed their argument to its logical conclusion, 
that there would be any less money going into that hospital pot. Now, do you remember the North Carolina treasurer? So, though he had an idea too, and it was bundling. something about yes, bundling or bulk um, services. <laughs> I it didn't. Um, well, we didn't ask him a whole yeah, lot. Yeah, we didn't about ask it, him but... a lot about it because he also said he was going to get back to trying to fight the same fight again if he's reelected. I guess bundling was a was a different way to try to set a limit on costs that didn't tie it to the federal reimbursement rate. Well, one of the smartest things in other coverage we've done, and I don't know if this is similar to what he was thinking about, but there are doctors now who are outside the insurance system entirely. And this is what I think would, we'd see a lot more of if we got some sort of federalized Medicare for all. There would be a lot of doctors getting out of the insurance system, seeing patients just for a monthly fee, keeping them healthy, taking care of them, or a monthly fee plus, you know, plus certain costs. And as we saw when we've covered doctors who have already done this, it is so much cheaper. Lab tests that literally a relative of mine was charged over $1,000 for cost $25 done by the same lab when the doctor directly books and it doesn't go through insurance and it doesn't go through the system. So you can start to see how costs would probably reduce dramatically if that model could be sustained on a broader basis. But that still leaves the issue of significant hospitalizations and what those things cost, because those plans, they cover you up to a certain point. But if you're going in because you've got a chronic health issue and need to be in rehab or need to be in a hospital for an extended period of time, that fee that you pay the doctor doesn't cover all of that. And then I'm going to sum up sort of my summarize sum up my last thought, which is, I just think a lot of people, after speaking to so many experts, a lot of people miss the mark when they say costs can be controlled again by maybe spreading out the cost of giving everybody insurance. They don't understand what other experts say, which is that just means hospitals, insurance companies, pharmaceutical industry, they're all negotiating these deals with your employer and maybe with the state or whoever they're covering that benefit them in terms of everybody getting a cut of the action, but ultimately do not benefit you. Now, it may look good to you because you get a co-payment of $5 on a $10,000 hospital bill, um, and you think, look at all the money I saved through my insurance, which you don't realize is you paid that $10,000. You paid the overinflated cost of the bare minimal services you got at the hospital through part of your premiums that are spread out. It wasn't the $5 copay, but they kind of get you focusing on wiping your brow and saying, well, at least I didn't have to pay that. I love my insurance. When, in fact, sometimes it is the negotiated rates by the insurance companies and the other people involved in the chain that keep the prices so high. And I think my takeaway, I haven't been covering this as long as you have, but my takeaway from these stories and certain other stories we've done is that the way the system works, the reason you have what you just described, all these things being negotiated somewhere else, is the reason why you can't get these reforms. The idea that state, important people in the, st in the states of this country can't even get the, the bare minimum of numbers from their own hospitals that operate in their states tells you how impossible it is to reform a system. If you can't get that information, you don't even know what to base your reform on. It's 
all designed to keep the consumer, the buyer, the, even probably the corporations who are covering a lot of uh, insurance benefits for people, keep everybody in the dark about what the real costs are. And I'll bake your noodle on this one. <laughs> even when they go by Medicare costs, because Medicare has done sort of a pricing and a negotiation that at least is a, a starting point, but those rates... What Medicare pays a doctor, a specialist for a procedure, for a device, what it doesn't pay, what it won't cover, that's all negotiated in secret. And I believe these meetings that take place every other year in Washington, D.C., where the press is not allowed, the public is not allowed, industry goes in there with federal officials. And you can imagine there are scenarios where certain industries get benefits of, we'll cover what you provide because we like you and you donate a lot of money, but we agree not to cover through this insurance plan we're going to negotiate, we won't cover plan Y or this procedure because for various reasons we don't like it, that company's not contributing as much, to whatever the reason. So even the Medicare rates, which is sort of a starting point of how thing, what things might cost, are themselves fraught with all kinds of lack of transparency. So I just think <laughs> that, to me, the image of the blank pages is the summary of this entire story no matter how you cover it getting answers is so hard i want to say one little thing about the business we're in i give some credit to the head of the north carolina hospital association for sitting down to a long not that easy of an interview and um he answered every question he sure did and and i always argue they're better off when they do that. Now, they don't always agree, and if I were them, I wouldn't necessarily trust me saying that. But certainly when the public can hear their side of things, and we have more time to tell their side of the story than in a two-minute piece on the evening news, like when I used to work for CBS. Our stories are longer, and they, ha they get plenty of time to make their case. And yes, I think that was terrific that they sat down with us. It was eye-opening, and... I guess both sides got represented well. And they always come off better for answering the questions than issuing some sort of email statement, which maybe we use 10 seconds of right. or something. Almost always. Always. <laughs> almost always. <laughs> Not always, but almost always. Well, thanks for working with me on another really interesting story, and I hope you guys thought this was interesting too. At the outset, I think it's worth saying that after talking to many, many health experts over the years about this, including Democrats, Republicans, and nonpartisans, the ones with the best track record say that the answer to solving our health care costs isn't with spreading around the cost by giving insurance for everyone. In fact, they say that just ensures the costs will continue to go up because someone's willing to pay them and spread out the costs. The answer, according to the experts I trust most, lies in actually reducing health care costs at the root of the problem. It won't be solved if everybody has insurance. It won't be solved, they say, if the government provides insurance for everyone. That just escalates the cost. So what is the answer? A lot of people think it's negotiating rates with hospitals, with doctors, with using buying and purchase power to shop around to make sure that what consumers are paying for, what patients are paying for, is more in line with what things cost. And that's what a lot of states are trying to do as they try to make their state health care plan solvent. 
which is part of what we're talking about today. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you did, leave a comment, like it, share it with your friends, and consider subscribing to the Cheryl Atkinson podcast and Full Measure After Hours. Those are two of my podcasts. You can listen to them on iTunes or your favorite distributor, or visit CherylAckeson.com and just look at the podcast tab. You can listen to them right there. Do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself. Thanks for listening.